Hello and welcome to The Appetite, a podcast brought to you by Opal Food and Body Wisdom, an eating disorder treatment center in Seattle, Washington. I'm your host, Carter Umhow, a therapist, artist, and writer. Before we begin today's episode, I want to let you all know about an event we've mentioned before on the podcast, but it's coming up soon. It's January 11th, and we are hosting a coach's talk called Creating a Healthy Sports Culture, Facilitating Athletes' Positive Relationship with Food, Body, and Exercise. This is going to be actually hosted at the University of Washington, which we're really excited about. And our exercise and sport founder and Opal co-founder, Kara Bazzi, will be there talking with our guest today, actually, Julie McCleary. So um, just a little quick mention of that um, before we get going on this episode, because I have a feeling you'll probably want to know about that um, before we begin. So all that to say, um, Julie McCleary is here to talk to us today, continuing a conversation that we had earlier on the podcast where Kara and I were talking a bit about what's been going on in the female running world lately and how it's really exposed some pretty toxic culture around teams and coaching. So today we're here talking with Julie about what is a good coach? How do we understand that? How do we think through that? So welcome. Thank you. Yeah, so glad to have you. I'm happy to be here. It's It's been nice to get to do more work with Kara and Julie and everyone mm-hmm. at, at Opal. And so this is just a nice continuation of what I hope it will be a long-term partnership. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. And obviously we have Kara Bazzi here as well. Hi, yes. Kara. Hi. Hi, hi. <laughs> um, Julie, I'd love for you to let us know a little bit about your background and what you do so our listeners can understand kind of the world you're from. Sure. I am a research associate at the Center for Leadership and Athletics at the University of Washington, which is a center within the College of Education. And I'm the director of research practice partnerships there, which means essentially I I do research and sort of take other research to try to make it practically applicable in the real world so that coaches and athletes and parents and the community can kind of understand a little bit about the more scientific and academic sports world and bring some of those things to life um, in their own practices. Mm -hmm. So So do you wind up working with coaches at the University of Washington as well, implementing the research? Yes. So we have the center started with a master's degree program, and it's a master's degree program in athletic administration and in intercollegiate coaching. So that's been going on for about 12 years. And during that time, I'd say in the kind of second half of the existence of the center, it started to focus more on the community and trying to take what we've learned from teaching the master's students and from our research on higher education and on youth sports and and really help support efforts in the community trying to transform sports or not not so much to transform them, but to help sports be the positive platform that Mm -hmm. we know they can be and that we think it takes, you know, great leaders to be able to do that. So trying to prepare leaders to create sports spaces that are educational and safe and fun and developmentally appropriate. And this That's is all ages, right, Julie? It is all ages, right? Mm-hmm. So the so while the master's degree program focuses on higher education and preparing athletic administrators, mostly at the college level and coaches at the college level, our community work and our research applies very broadly. And we're working with youth sports coaches and high school coaches and program directors mm-hmm. and, you know, parents, anyone kind of with athletes in the system from, let's say, five to 
through college. No way. Yeah. How do coaches find you? I've been curious about that. It's a great question. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we're working on that. Ourselves. Yeah. We. We're teaching a lot of undergraduate classes now as well, and those classes have become hugely popular, and we typically have an undergraduate class, let's say, and um, we have one called Education in the Playfield, which will have 90 to 100 undergraduates wow. in it. That's one way that just word of mouth is, is spreading because we're starting to educate more people who are then going out into the community and, and serving youth. But we also do a lot of conferences. We try to write a lot. So we're getting, you know, research out there or articles out there that are that are talking about our work. And we're trying to build out a, a website and a mm -hmm. social media platform that helps people know that know we're that there. Exist, yeah. And we do a lot of organizational training. So last year we trained about 600 coaches wow. in the region. Wow. And that's mostly through our organizational trainings, going into schools and meeting with larger groups of coaches and, and training them. So. Mm -hmm. So you're going to them, like when you do the trainings, right. you're going into the schools. We have mm -hmm. two programs where we bring our training to the community. One is we'll go to any organization and do, you know, for example, we're working with the Northwest School right now, and we're going there four times over the course of this year to meet That's with awesome. all of their coaches. So that organizational training, we can shape that to suit the needs of any school or, or program. And then we also offer our Excel coaching credential which is a more intensive version of those organizational trainings. It falls somewhere between the master's degree program, right? It's not a whole mm -hmm. year commitment and tuition, um, but it is a full kind of three-day in-person followed by quite a bit of online work, even videoing yourself and kind of sending your videos in for commentary from your for peer from your peers and from us and really getting feedback on your craft. Wow. So it's it's a commitment and so we are running our third one of those in in February. So this mm -hmm. will be our third cohort. So those are more individually based and coaches come to us for those. That's one of the things that I've I've been wondering about is just the barriers that coaches have with time and resources and so curious like what coaches end up signing up for that and what is it about those coaches that do, I guess, maybe prioritize that because I think that is I know that that is one of the largest barriers to coach education is. Absolutely. It's a time. barrier, the time and the resources, mm -hmm. especially when the majority of coaches at the youth sports level are volunteer. Exactly. Right. So you're asking people to dedicate time to something that they're already dedicating a lot of right. the, yeah. a lot of time to. So that's a that's a conundrum I think the field grapples with in in general. I mean we just did a, a study called the State of Play, Seattle King County, and we found that for youth six to ten, seventy percent of the coaches are volunteer. Right. So those are right. It's the totally, majority yeah. of coaches yeah. coaching our youngest kids and how can we get them that information. So you're right, that's that's a barrier. And I I will say that we have found that the folks coming to us for more training are people generally who already get it enough to know they need more training, mm -hmm. right? Yes. So they're pretty well-informed folks. And I would say folks who are willing to be self-reflective and who are generally self-aware, mm -hmm. which I would say is probably one of the most important skills in coaching mm -hmm. <laughs> is mm -hmm. being reflective and self-aware. Mm -hmm. But we also, when then we go out into organizations, the athletic directors or program directors are, are bringing us in. And I think that's an important way mm -hmm. for coaches of organizations, even that are volunteer run, 
to just be offered the opportunity for trainings. And we can, you know, we'd rather make it long and continuous, <laughs> but we can do a sort of short training just mm-hmm. to meet people's needs. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. yeah, that makes sense. So I want to know some more about kind of where you started realizing that there were all of these holes in which there needed to be some filling in order to, you know, train people and get these coaches kind of to a higher standard. What did you notice before? I guess I would have to say like it's not just me noticing. Yeah, of course. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's something that's certainly well known in the field of coaching and is called coach development. Mm-hmm. Same thing as coach training, but called coach development, that there's this real research practice gap. So there are a lot of folks researching sports science and sports psychologists and, and folks sort of doing work in the academic realm, but it's just an ongoing international sort of concern about how do you get those best practices to coaches, particularly because the coaching field is so decentralized and there's just no common definition of what all coaches need and when they need it and and how to give it how to give it to them. And really we're lacking kind of a definition of what it means to be a quality coach in mm-hmm. the in the first place. And so that just makes those kind of interventions and, and programs particularly hard to implement. We have I'm so happy to have Julie here because she knows about good coaching practices. <laughs> I know I want to And I just feel like a lot of people are like, well, what is I mean, I can imagine a lot of people wouldn't know how to put language to what that is. They might know and have a felt experience of their own of what a, like a positive coach in their history was or a negative coaching experience was in their history, but then not be able to put words to that. And then you're also naming this self-awareness piece as being critical. And again, like what are culturally kind of the the barriers for self-awareness and that being even a value when there's such a do and action oriented approach to everything really and in sport <laughs> of producing results right. <laughs> instead well, of and looking ultimately inward. there are like one does need to produce results exactly, as yeah. a coach right so i think sometimes people are scared to sort of start at you know to dial it back and say okay let's start with some self reflection and what are mm-hmm. our values like that feels very far away from winning right but right. ultimately that's the work that that yes. we have to do and we use a framework at um, the Center for Leadership and Athletics called Ambitious Coaching, which is how we are trying to put some language to this, to, mm-hmm. to your point. And ambitious coaching is what happens at the intersection of peak athletic performance and social emotional growth. So we say that successful coaches are those who pay attention to both of those things simultaneously and who don't see them as at all mutually exclusive and see them as mutually reinforcing. Yes. Love it. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Love it. So can you say some more around like what it is that makes them actually really reinforcing of one another? Yeah, and I love the word reinforcing and enhancing. That can provide some of the reduction of the barrier to do the work, honestly, because that could be the window in. That can be the sort of door open for a coach to put the effort in because – if there is a, a lot of drive to succeed, like that could be the entry point. And then I feel like people could have more, um, see more value in it as they do that work. Right. And I, I, I think that, so it does make sense because I think that's key that I've been doing this this work for a while. And I feel like coaches see the social emotional work as an add-on mm-hmm. or they can see it as an add-on. And if they see it as an add-on, then that's, that's not mm-hmm. really ambitious coaching, right? Because 
true ambitious coaching is seeing those items as tied together, that success actually is only happening if there's social, emotional growth, wellness in that holistic sense Mm -hmm. for the athlete. And that's actually going to get you to Mm -hmm. peak performance. So I, I agree that helping people see that is important. And Carter, to your point, one of the things I think is kind of ironic about this is that we always say sports builds character, mm-hmm. right? But the truth is sports on its own doesn't just build character. And and in fact, you know, as we heard in, in Mary's story and you can hear from a lot of other athletes, like it actually can be somewhat destructive and it, it really is up to coaches to figure out how sport can serve as that platform for the kind of character building and life skills acquisition that we think sport should be about and that they are the, they are the mediators of that mm-hmm. and if they can get that out of their practices and competitions and team culture that they are then going to be building athletes for life but it's not going to happen accidentally it's right. something that people have to do with a lot of intention mm-hmm. and a lot of information around the importance of an athlete's wellness because when I'm thinking about that paradigm of like you know character building within athletics I was thinking about the army you know that there's a sort of like just tough it out do the thing you know you're you're there to serve which maybe can be effective for war to not be connected to yourself emotionally Um, but when it comes to athletic performance for the sustainability of a career it's not necessary to cut off all these parts of a person in order to perform. Or to cut out people. I mean, right. I would say yeah. the other piece about the army analogy, which I think is a good one, is that people drop out. Right. 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 Yeah. And so I think there are coaches and we do have a sports culture that's like, well, if you can't hack it, then this isn't for you. And unfortunately, we have way too much of that, which means that we have kids dropping out of sports at really high rates and we have an epidemic around physical inactivity, mm-hmm. right? So we have <laughs> so to, ironic. right? We have to start to believe that our job as coaches is to keep kids in sport for as long as possible, and that this argument about, well, this is what it's like in the real world, or we need to toughen up, isn't developmentally appropriate mm-hmm. for your eight, nine, ten, eleven-year-old, right? Like right. it's just we need to actually use sport to give them those skills, so that when they get to those situations later in life, they have the skills that they need. Not to say, well, if you don't have it when you're eleven, that's it. You're done with mm-hmm. you're yeah. done with soccer. You're done with you know volleyball. That's mm-hmm. that's it for you. And and I think too much of sport is kind of that casting kids aside because mm-hmm. they don't have the emotional development or the physical development at the time that coaches mm-hmm. or parents think they should have it, mm-hmm. you know, and that's getting younger and younger. But mm-hmm. um, anyway, we need to do a better job of holding yeah. on to as many kids for as long as possible. And that's going to take a much more holistic approach than what we have right now. Mm-hmm. So what would that look like with that that sort of age group in terms of coaching better? It would look like how Kara's coaching her team. Yes. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> That's a very big compliment. Thank you, Julie. We talked a little bit about that yeah. in the Mary Kane episode um, mm-hmm. that we released. And, and Kara, you were talking about your basketball team and really mm-hmm. focusing on connection amongst those girls. My team chats. Yeah, team chats. You want to hear my team chat from this week? I do. On Monday, where I'm going to now do my next four little mini team chats about the role of emotion. And I'm going through anger and sadness and um, fear and happiness. And how that plays into their experience in the in in practice and in games, Ooh. and what those emotions communicate to us instead of just like I can't feel those things or you just want to be you know just all the assumptions that people have around emotion. But we're gonna 
talk about what they what they communicate. That's awesome. And when yeah. I was listening to that episode, I thought, so we, within Ambitious Coaching, we have something called the Am- Ambitious Coaching Core Practices. And those are 15 of the kind of observable uh, daily activities that coaches do that are high leverage that get the best results for mm-hmm. kids. And some of them would sound really simple, like feedback and instruction, but others are things like social emotional skill building, Mm -hmm. routines, practice planning, right? So when I was listening to Mm -hmm. you talk about what you do and these team chats that you have, you're covering so many of the core practices in there. So the social emotional skill building, you're asking the girls to talk about what they feel and who they are, right? So you're also covering relationship building. Mm -hmm. You talked about how you get to know them better when they are able to sort of talk freely, you're like, oh, okay, I understand why she might be afraid of me using her as the example to demonstrate a skill. That's just not something she's comfortable with, right? So mm-hmm. it allows you to, to get to know the athletes and for them to get to know each other. So you've got social emotional skill building, relationship building, routines. Mm-hmm. So setting up a routine like that is any routines, especially for kids that age, really reduces anxiety. Right. So they know that this is like a comfortable space, a safe space. They're allowed to be who they are. That lets them bring their whole self to Mm -hmm. practice. So you're doing so many things. They actually they know exactly what time they want to do the team chat. They're like (laughs) at 6 (laughs) p.m. We're not going to do it at an earlier water break. We're going to go at six. <laughs> so they right. like, yeah, they, they, they really love it, like right? the routine. They, it's something that they can, that yeah. they can count on. Rely so on. Mm-hmm. we help coaches to, you know, like, like you, you, you kind of knew intuitively probably mm-hmm. that those were good things to do because you've been an athlete and you're a person and mm-hmm. people like relationship building. So, yeah. but we help coaches kind of get language for that. And That's then so you cool. can talk to another coach and say, okay, I use this relationship building routine that's called team chats. Do what do you do? Mm-hmm. And then you can share practices and you can just have a common conversation about, you know, what it is you're doing and therefore be more intentional about building out that practice for yourself. Mm-hmm. Very cool. Mm-hmm. I'd love for you to talk a little bit about, about gender and just if you see any gender differences in terms of what you're doing in, in training these coaches. I think there's been some talk on some of these follow-up podcasts around the Mary Kane thing around motivation of athletes and the role of that some people still be- believe that shaming is a, is a way of motivating athletes. Um, and just maybe like this ideas or different ways that um, is, does gender play a role in differences of motivation or different coaching uh, practices? I think it's a tricky question because on the one hand, I want to say no, but that's not exactly mm. right. I think Lauren Fleshman, uh, the um, distance runner who wrote a response in the New York Times mm-hmm. to Mary Kane, she said something like, I'm not going to get the quote exactly right, but if, if we built sports for girls, everyone would be better served. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think that's uh, that's right. Mm-hmm. So what I take that to mean, and, and I, you know, I think this is what she meant, is that if we expand our sense of what sport is, sort of the way I'm saying with ambitious coaching, we want to expand our understanding of what success looks like. So if we are more holistic in our approach to sport, if we think about our bodies a little bit more, if we take care of people's bodies more as maybe needed to happen in Mary Kane's case, mm-hmm. do, do men not benefit from that as well? Right. right. For sure, they do. Right. If we would suggest that maybe women 
enjoy the relational components of sport more, which they may or may not. Some some may and say, but no one is harmed mm-hmm. by by adding in more relational elements to sport, by adding in more of a social emotional you know growth component to sport. So I think that it's important to say that the if there are changes to be made in sport for girls, it's really for everyone. Mm-hmm. And that that boys and men are harmed by some of the narrow ways we think that coaching should look for them. No one wants to be shamed. No one deserves to be mm-hmm. shamed. And I think I see with my own boys who who play a lot of different sports, I every time I go to a tournament, a competition, I see some child being shamed mm-hmm. in front of peers, in front of parents. And I see a real failure of all of us to stand up to that and, you know, to say that's not right. I don't want my kid to experience that. I don't want someone else's kid to experience that. And it's um, it's hard for me to go to those things and to see that and, and to see no one take action on behalf of kids. When if it happened in any other context, you know, a classroom or an after school program or probably even in like a store if someone was shaming a kid in the middle of an aisle, there might be some upstander who would step in and intervene. Anyway, so yeah, I have pretty strong feelings Mm. about about that. What do you do when you see it? Do you? Yeah, I try to talk to coaches individually, but I don't, it's not that well received. Mm -hmm. Like if I came up to you after a basketball game and said, hey, you know, I know you think you're helping the kids, but I'm not sure the yelling is making them play better or, you know, just I I try to say some, but people look at me like, who the hell are you, lady? Right. Like, so I don't have any, I'm not wearing a badge that says like, (laughs) I I coach coaches. Um, We all need to be Mary Kane, right? Mm -hmm. We all need to stand up when we see these things happen and how we do it, I think is the question. But I would say to parents who I think have the biggest, um, like the most weight in these situations that your kid doesn't deserve that. And even if the team wins, that's not a good enough reason to put up with no. behavior that you know in your gut is not right for your kid. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think that happens a lot. You know, when I talk with parents, like, this doesn't seem right or it's really upsetting to them. But, like, the team's really good, so what should I do? It's right. like, who cares? Or I trust <laughs> – there's, like, this kind of inherent trust in a coach. I think, like, I'm thinking of my own athlete experience – both at high school and college level of, of being in very not good situations. But I think there's so much trust that's being right. given to the system, to the coach. Like even, I mean, I had a conversation with my mom actually recently about my high school basketball experience. And I mean, we could, everyone could see just my performance decline as I shriveled away and this, like a, this, this toxic way that my coach was treating me. But like, I think there is, I think there's a lot of, I don't know, like fear or not sure what, how to handle that. Or just that there's like this trust being given. Yeah. I, I when was, we don't even have the coaches training. I mean, I think that's the piece that's just so like. Right. Why is the trust being given? Exactly. Right. When I think of like my mom who's social emotional, she is so far exceeds the social emotional skills that that my high school basketball coach had. And yet she still held herself back. You know, I don't know. It's interesting. But the other piece of that is that there's not any good mechanism for her to intervene. Right. Right. And what's the the choice? And I think a lot of parents feel this. Well, if I were to say anything, then maybe she wouldn't play at all. Right. And she'd get punished. Right. Which which is which is worse. So and maybe sometimes it is worse to stay with the, the program. One of the things that we're working on is trying to build those conversations between parents 
and coaches, because I think that that is a mechanism that really needs to be built. How do, how do we build trust? And what we try to put at the center of those conversations is an athlete bill of rights. So what is that what does the athlete have a right to, right? The the athlete has a right to a safe environment physically and emotionally, right? And so that that's just that's one thing to so cool. to developmentally appropriate training. So on the just on the safety part, I think that's where there's a lot of common ground. And both parents and coaches have responsibility for that um creating that safe space. So for just for example, if we're just talking about physical safety, you know, it might be a parent's responsibility to try to purchase the right equipment or to know what the equipment is that a child needs to have to play safely and to help them get to practice on time to do the warm-up so that they cannot be injured. But then it's the coach's responsibility to use practices that are going to keep people from getting injured, to have a warm-up, to have first aid training, to have safety you know, practices and, and protocols, right? And then what we would say is that if a parent or a coach feels like either one is sort of violating their responsibility to support the kid in that way, that they, they are allowed to intervene. Mm-hmm. Um, so everybody plays their role yeah. first, and then if an intervention is necessary, so if a parent sees that a coach is playing a kid who has a clear injury, right, that parent should be allowed to intervene mm-hmm. because that's not meeting the athlete bill of rights. It's not safe. On the other hand, if a if a coach sees that a parent is bringing a kid to practice who has an injury and forcing them out on the field, the coach has the right to intervene and say, I don't think mm-hmm. this is healthy. So yeah. everybody has rights there, but the main rights are oriented around the kid. Mm-hmm. What is it mm-hmm. about athletics that make like this environment um, one in which like the the coaches could get away with so much? That's such a great question. I think it's I think it's winning. I think in part it's competition that we all lose our minds a little bit <laughs> in the midst of competition. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean I do I do too. Right, it's very hard to make to have good judgment when you're sort of flooded with cortisol. Right, so. If you're worked up about a game and you know I should get this kid in, but but if I put this kid in, then I'm not going to have the person, the position that I want for the end of the game. And like in that moment, it's hard to make your best decision. So I think yeah. that's part of it. Like some of the behaviors we see just come out of adults not being able to regulate their emotions. Yeah, adults not being developed. Right. I mean, it's it's really right. Like right. so many coaches come from their own athletic experiences. They haven't done their own kind of work and development. And so it's right. more of a kind of a recycling of their own. Well, that could be say? from their experiences. I was thinking you're going to say like emotionally developed. Right. Or, no, they're not. Yeah. Right. And so yeah. it goes back to that self-awareness piece. Right. So, for example, about myself, I know that I am a planner and that if I get into a game and it's not going how I want it to go and and my substitutions aren't lining up or three people didn't show up who I thought were going to be there. Like I'm kind of screwed because I'm really bad at making those snap decisions. So I have that self-awareness to then be able to do something like reach out to an assistant coach and say, hey, I'm going to need some support with this. So Mm -hmm. it's adults being self-aware, being able to regulate their own emotions. Mm -hmm. I mean, a dysregulated adult cannot regulate a child. No. Right? right? So that's what we see a lot of dysregulated adults. And yeah. that's again like that bottom foundational piece about coaching is self-awareness and reflection. Yeah. Like I who you that. are. You yeah. have to be 
in the right place to be that role model and be that that emotional regulator yeah. for a kid. So I, I'd say that's one thing. Wait, I want to add oh, yeah, to that sorry. from a RODBT lens too. I think what Julie's saying is is making me think of the neurobiological levels in RODBT of being kind of in your safe zone, your threat zone, your overwhelm zone. And in this, I think you lose some of your awareness when you're in your um, reward zone, which I would say like that comes up in competition, especially when you're like excited yeah. and competitive. And um, and so again, right. if you know that about yourself, you can bring more self-awareness to yeah. then right. kind of be at play when you're in that coaching situation. Yeah. yeah. There's also something that that I think of within all of that, maybe particularly being in a reward zone, is that there's something inherently objectifying suddenly once you're in the game mm-hmm. to like figure out which player goes where and how you can use them and who's going to do well and who's mm-hmm. not really. And, you know, you're looking at the strategy as a coach to figure out how you can win. And you're not thinking about the sort of relational emotional experience of the the athletes at that moment. That's a great that's a great point and I, I was going to say something similar in terms of that's other issue goes back to the short term versus the long term yeah. which is it's a it's a you're you're playing for a moment you're playing for a win and it's really easy to lose sight of the long term. So it's it's really easy to lose sight of what is the impact on that 11-year-old who sits on the bench the whole game in that moment, right? Mm-hmm. Even if you know it. Like even if intellectually you know it you lose sight of that long yeah. term. But in the bigger picture, I think parents, coaches, and even kids alike are in general in American sports culture losing sight of the long term for the short term, right? We're just not focused on long-term athlete development in that way. So my colleague Hannah gives a a great example of how coaches can do better in this. She has a a good example. Luckily, she was she's six feet tall and she was six feet tall, I think in sixth grade, she says. (laughs) And so, you know, most basketball coaches would just put her in the paint and pass the ball to Hannah and we score, right? Mm -hmm. But this coach thinking long-term knew that Hannah eventually is going to get passed, right, in height because she's probably done growing. And also if she wants to be, if she wants to play for the long-term, she's going to need to develop a lot more skills. So we can't just, it's bad for Hannah and it's bad for everybody else to just do that. So he puts Hannah as point guard, right? And he makes her play all the positions. And she was actually really mad about it. And her parents were mad about it. Like, you would win if you would just put Hannah there and pass her the ball all the time. But, like, who benefits long term from that? Nobody. 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 Right? And so short-sighted. It's so so short-sighted. And it happens all the time, especially to, like, kids who grow early. Mm -hmm. Right? I mean, you see that they get a lot more touches often and but they often also get kind of these narrow roles that don't help they them don't develop yeah, okay. and they also don't get developed in terms of seeing maybe like developing resilience because they're always seen as the ones who kind of it comes easy to and then when they do come up against some of those roadblocks later in their career it can be it can be harder for them mm-hmm. so absolutely yeah I think I'd be curious, too, for athletes that have been listening to this episode that are well past their parents being involved. Mm, right. What right. What do you think they would need to know in terms of how to ask for what they right. want or how to recover from bad coaching? That was a huge question, really. Right. I, <laughs> I, I think the good news is about um, kind of the USA Gymnastics and USA Swimming and now even figure skating very recently and, and Mary Kane is that. There is a little bit more of a culture of being able to ask for what you want, and I would encourage athletes to do that. I think even in college programs, we're seeing 
we're seeing athletes come together and say, hey, I think this way the coach has been treating us for the last three years is 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 maybe not right. We should take this to someone. So I think, again, it's it's that back to we all need to be Mary Kane is when mm-hmm. we think something's not right, when we're being shamed or seeing other people being shamed or blamed or abused in any way. We need to find that athletic director or program director, parent, someone, and just talk to them about it. And and for athletes who are going into college programs, I want to empower them to ask the coaches how did they how did they support their athletes around mental health? How do they support them around academics? Right? I mean, I think coaches are doing a better job of thinking about those things. But the more the athletes ask those questions about how they're going to be supported holistically the more likely programs are to be able to to open themselves up to provide resources to support mm-hmm. students who need those kind of things. Great so. questions for a recruiting trip. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Well, any final thoughts before we end? Uh, the, the, one, the one plug I'll just give is that there aren't enough women coaches. Yes. <laughs> so, Kara, thank you for what you're doing. So another thing I always do at tournaments, I just did it this um, past weekend. There was one woman coach out of like the – I don't know, I must have seen 40 teams throughout the weekend, one woman coach, and I went up to her and just said, thank you for what you're doing. Um, And we all can be allies to bring more women into coaching, and only 25% of youth sports coaches are women. Only 40% of women's college coaches are women, right? So 60% of women's teams are coached by men. Mm -hmm. In track and field, it's only 13%. And again, it's it's not about women necessarily being better at anything, just different. And the opening up the possibilities for all kids, athletes, people to see different versions of leadership, to understand a broader sense of what leadership looks like, to ask more questions about the status quo, to kind of make some shifts in that very traditionally male-oriented sports culture that a lot of programs have. So I think just bringing more women in will will help to raise awareness levels around some of these issues a little bit more. And I think women are inherently um, have a lot of the skills that they need to coach. But unfortunately, back to sort of how we define what it means to be a quality coach, we often put too much emphasis on the X's and O's and having technical and tactical knowledge. And that is just a tiny, tiny part of what it means to be a great coach, right? It's just the smallest sliver. And all the things we've talked about today about Mm -hmm. social, emotional well-being and nutrition and, you know, even time management, relationship building, all of these things like women can be good at, we can be good at, we are good at, and we should use those skills to coach because they're essential. Mm -hmm. So wonderful. I feel like there's so many more things to talk about in this. And (laughs) I know that just to mention it again for those listening that want to hear more of the two of you in conversation and the two of you leading coaches and people that work with athletes, um, there is that wonderful talk that's going to be happening on January 11th at the University of Washington through Opal. So again, check that out. Um, And Julie, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. Yeah, it's it's been really fun. Thank you to Daniel Gunther at Jack Straw Cultural Center for sound engineering, to Aaron Davidson for the Appetites original music, and Hans Anderson for editing. If you want to learn more about the event um, that I just mentioned and all of Opal's programming, any other upcoming events, make sure you check out our website at opalfoodandbody.com and stay in touch with us on social media through Instagram, Facebook, Twitter at Opal Food and Body. 